and welcome to today's episode of the Religion Prof Podcast. I'm very happy to have as my guest on the podcast today, Anthony Ledun, who has been on before, but I'm going to introduce him a little differently this time. So in the past, I've introduced him as New Testament scholar, person who works on historical Jesus and things like that. Today, I am introducing him as uh, one of the authors of Gods of Thrones, A Pilgrim's Guide to the Religions of Ice and Fire, which, uh, if I've understood correctly, is a a multi-volume work. Uh, And so, uh, Anthony, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here to talk about another of my interests, which is the intersection of religion and popular culture. Yeah, no, I'm I'm happy to be here. Um, Thank you for the introduction. I do still uh, occasionally work on New Testament studies. Same here, same here. (laughs) And uh, Second Temple Judaism. But it's fun, as you know, it is fun from time to time to apply some of the techniques we've learned in the study of your religion and apply it to things that are just exciting to talk about, like, for instance, Game of Thrones. Indeed. And on the one hand, I know Game of Thrones is exciting, but on the other hand, I will say up front for people who are listening who may not already know what I have previously disclosed to you, which is that I don't watch, have not watched Game of Thrones. And so I know it by reputation. I know it from memes and other things, of course, uh, and hearing people talk about it. It looks like the sort of thing I would enjoy, but uh, tell I me. Think, yeah, yeah, no, I think, James, that, that this is going to come as a shock to many people that know you. Um, mm-hmm. Not necessarily that you haven't watched the HBO adaptation, but at least, at least it seems it seems like you would have read the books. This yeah, seems like like something of an oversight on your part. Yeah, and I mean to be honest, on the one hand, I have gravitated more of late towards science fiction rather than fantasy. Uh-huh. On the other hand, you know, love you know love. Uh, Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, Tolkien uh, grew up reading you know, all kinds of things. Um, Terry Brooks, you know, the sure. uh, Shannara series, uh, right. which I was pronouncing wrong until I actually met him and got the book signed at Gen Con. Um, Did you say, uh, how, how, how were you pronouncing it before? So he, um, Shannara, I think was what That's I That's how I do. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Clearly, I, I've been pronouncing so, it correctly. Yeah, well... Maybe later we'll talk about you know how much control does an author have over those sorts of things unless they actually work work the pronunciation right. guide into what they publish. Right. But yeah, I'm actually a big fan of fantasy as well, but not uh, not as current a one uh, as with science fiction. So maybe the place to start is to say you know even before we get to why should somebody buy and read your book even if they don't watch the show. Why should people be watching the show who aren't currently watching? Why should people be reading the book who haven't read it? Um, yeah, so. well, I guess my I guess my advice would be to just maybe start reading the first book, and if it doesn't grab you within the first couple chap- chapters, then move on with your life. There, there are lots of things to do with your <laughs> life uh, rather than sort of. Uh, fall down into the the rabbit hole of um of a of a, a well-constructed 
fantasy scape. Um, but if you like world building, and I think that a lot of people that like fantasy, like part of the enjoyment is occupying the world that's created by the author. So if that's the kind of thing that you enjoy, then then nobody does it better than Tolkien, but maybe second best is is George Martin. And, uh, and part of the ways that he creates his fantasy landscape, uh, which is something that Tolkien doesn't do at all, is to create religious systems and a, religious, a world of religious pluralism, really. Hmm. And some of these religions he, he models after real-world religions like Zoroastrianism or Roman Catholicism. And some of these religions he just kind of invents. Uh, maybe some he, he's got he's got at least one religion that looks a little bit uh, like H.P. Uh, Lovecraft stuff. So the the books the, the books that uh, my co-author and I have have written two volumes is is sort of deep dives into the religions uh, and trying to explain them in parallel to ancient and medieval religions that we that we know about and trying to learn a little bit about ourselves in a, in a fun way but also kind of uh use the study of ancient peoples and ancient religions to understand better the world that Martin has created. Yeah, and world building of course is one of the things that I think uh, fans of science fiction and fans of fantasy tend to share, um, even though they sometimes go about it quite differently. But I think one of the conversations that hasn't happened to the extent that it probably should is comparing religion across fantasy and science fiction, right? So what's done with religion in both of these types of literature and both of these genres. And then uh, things like magic and you know the ability to interact with uh, the spiritual, the supernatural, uh, to the extent that those things are part of one of these uh, fictional worlds, not part of one of these fictional worlds, or as often happens in sci-fi, is part of it, but they don't call it magic and don't admit that it's magic, even though they have no actual <laughs> scientific explanation for the thing, right? Right, sure. Um, I think that's one of the things that makes it you know fascinating is precisely that you know in fantasy, People will invent, you know, say, okay, magic is real, but there are these rules and you have to follow them or there are things, you know, so it doesn't, it's not just anything you wish happens, right? That would be very dull. Um, And in science fiction, it's not anything that you wish happens, but, you know, it's, it's a, yeah, it's force lightning. It's not, you know, wizard lightning, but how is that different, right? <laughs> well, uh, all right. So I, I'm kind of geeking out today because I don't know if you're, in, if you, if you're into um, Stranger Things. So the, the trailer for season three of Stranger Things dropped today. Are you, are you interested in this show at all? I, it's, it's another one that, that, that one's further up my list of things that I, I'm supposed to get to eventually, but haven't yet, so. Right, so the world building for Stranger Things, oh, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, mm. it's fantastic just because Stranger Things has, is built with, a, with conscious hat tips to all of your favorite 80s sci-fi movies. Uh, so if, if you know those movies well, then you, you'll you know you'll see the homage and you'll get to relive that a little bit. But the world building that's that's the, the, in Stranger Things is simply 
1980s Indiana. So it's it, it's very you know it's very familiar and so the, the, there's a certain nostalgia that goes along with Stranger Things, and I don't know about you, but for me, I like my sci-fi in the very near future. So not too much of it is difficult to believe. Um, I guess I'm willing to suspend my disbelief a little bit more generously with fantasy narrative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, like like the, the classic, you know, the the classic example would be Star Trek, where you can imagine, you know, just just a hundred years from now, you could imagine <laughs> that this this new world starting to take shape, and people have flip phones. Yeah, sure. yeah, <laughs> of course, yeah, of course, um, yeah, flip phones, uh, tricorders, and. Uh, uh, you know, t- you know, touching, not quite realizing artificial intelligence yet. Uh, things like things like that, that that we can imagine that we can see. Well, we're really on the cusp of that particular kind of technology. What would the world be like when, you know, when we do realize it? So that that's that's fun. Now you you're working on a, a something related to Star Wars and canon. Is that is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, I'm actually working on a, a book chapter uh, that's uh, essentially doing some exploration of canon uh, within the uh, Star Wars world and then outside, and some of the parallels between the two. Uh, just looking at things like the question of you know, Jedi sacred texts that make a brief appearance only to get uh-huh. yeah. uh, torched and things like that. Sorry if that's a spoiler, but you should have seen the movie by now. So, uh, <laughs> right, right. You know. no. uh, but also looking at how the, um, the expanded universe uh, was similarly torched, you know, and uh, yes, <laughs> you know, as it were, and you know, is, is there symbolism in that? And then of course, what can we learn from exploration of Canon, you know, on screen and off screen, but in connection with Star Wars for uh, religious canon, things of that sort. So do you, all right, so let's talk about, I, I'm curious about this. <clears throat> so it seems like for a canon to exist, you need a community. Mm. And you need a community that is willing to create to delimit a particular kind of story or a particular kind of text, uh, a community that says, this is ours. There's, we identify with these texts. And there may be, you know, sort of peripheral texts, uh, but, but we identify, you know, these are official. We give the rubber stamp to these particular texts. And, and something has to happen socially for those to achieve that kind of status. A- a- am, I, am I close to, to your view on this? Uh, yes, I mean, I think that in theory, somebody could have their own personal canon, but I don't know that anybody would ever talk about it in those terms. Um, and it certainly wouldn't be a very interesting one. Um, but canon is, um, at least as we normally refer to it, this thing that is um, communally defined you know, there may be an authority structure that says this is our canon, but of course, if people don't recognize that authority, then right, it it 
it does not stand. Um, so, so the you know, so I, I guess, I guess the with with respect to Star Wars, there are there 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 is something of a Pentateuch in in that you've got you know these three original movies uh, that were you know began in the late seventies, moving through the eighties. And then there was this long time period, and in about what it was the night the the episode one was ninety something. Does that sound ring? That sounds about right. Yeah. And that had every that had every chance to be part of that original canon, and yet the fan community, even though there was some sort of authority given to George Lucas, the fan community basically rejected those first three movies or Speak for yourself say, hang on wait a minute no um, i think yeah. i think it's i think it's been decided this is has james this has been decided i think you're a heretic <laughs> the rules are are semi-canon <laughs> well the, one of the interesting things about canon is that things can be canonical with lots of interesting shades of gray you know so there are people who will say, yes, absolutely, you know, um, I mean, my go-to example is the letter of Jude or the postcard of Jude, you know, it's yeah, right. this tiny little thing that it's like, have you read it? You know, do you do anything with it? In what sense is it canon? It's, it's there in between the covers of your Bible, but yeah. And so there's always the canon within the canon, you know, something's being, you know, paid more attention to or shown more deference than others. Some things where you say, I'm not really sure what to do with, you know, either Paul on works or James on works or Jar Jar or, you know, whatever it is. Right. But it seems to me that the, there's actually been a, there's been a church split in Star Wars. Made a, a, a parallel between James and Jar Jar. Or Paul and Jar Jar, depending and, on and no, yeah. you I think different listeners Jar Jar, that's what you said. And so it seems to me that we can, we can make a determination about, your preference for Pauline theology based on the association between James and Jar Jar. If you're so inclined, feel free. But I said, you know, <laughs> don't know what to do with Paul, don't know what to do with James, don't know what to do with Jar Jar. Those All are right. my three examples. Okay. All right. Uh, people will listen to the podcast, they'll make their own determination. But, you know, the fact that something's written or verbalized in a particular way, um, you know, I mean, could Paul have written something and you know, not actually expressed accurately what he had in mind and what he intended, right? Um, whether I meant to equate Paul, James, and Jar Jar or more James and Jar Jar over and against Paul or anything like that, does it matter what I intended? You know, there are all these interesting questions that really actually even, you know, in the process of talking about this, we're illustrating some of the things that come up when you're dealing with a canon. Well, I think that I, for with, with Star Wars in particular... I think that um, <clears throat> I do think that there's a canon within a canon. I mean, I think that we probably could agree on that. Um, that that as far as the you know, a New Hope is going to occupy a, a certain prominence uh, where Episode One or Two will not occupy that same prominence. And uh, and I think that you will find a lot of fans 
who will simply want to exist as if the, the prequels never existed. Uh, they just they, they just don't want to, to they want to live in a world where it just never happened. And, uh, and and of course this is going to be debatable, but it really doesn't matter whether or not Lu- Lucas was behind the wheel of these things. They they a lot of fans just simply think that these prequels don't exist on the same plane as the original uh, trilogy. Yeah, and I think that's a much more widely held view. Um, I mean, certainly there are people who would say, I just pretend they don't exist, right? Uh, There are people who would say Phantom Menace didn't like, but then, you know, Attack of the Clones a bit better and, you know, Revenge of the Sith a bit better still or things like that. And then there are people who will say they're all canon, right? George Lucas gets to decide. Lucasfilm gets to decide and then ignore them or don't treat them in the same way as they treat the others. If somebody grew up watching the prequels, that was their first inroad to Star Wars, they don't perceive them the way that somebody who had the nostalgia connected with the original trilogy um, sometimes perceived them. And so that, I think, is also an interesting aspect of things. You know, uh, generational shifts can affect the canon, how it's perceived, what's, what's highly esteemed and what's not. So this is interesting to me because I think that it, I think it's important to call out the flexibility of uh, of this of the formation, and I think that there's something very interesting happening with Game of Thrones canon because Game of Thrones, of course, is a book series that is unfinished. Um, I, I don't know how much of this you're familiar with i'm sure i'm sure you you've heard people talk about this um but the books are not yet finished so the last book that was published by martin is called the dance of dragons and we're expecting two more books the winds of winter and a dream of spring and people are just kind of wondering if these things will ever be published at this point Mm. um but the the showrunners to the hbo adaptation had deadlines and they were not as cavalier with their deadlines as was the author. So these uh, showrunners went ahead and continued writing the adaptation so that you've got this strange thing where it's almost as if there's there's this parallel fan fiction happening alongside of the canon and yet the the only official ending we may ever get is with the fan fiction Hmm. and and then in reverse if indeed the original author decides to complete these books and let's hope that he does uh if he ever decides to complete these books he is going to in some way have have to do this knowing that there's this parallel telling of the story that already exists in the world. So, so now we, it, it's almost as if you've got this branching effect where you've got these two parallel narratives, both occupying something like a canon, but in parallel, almost as if you've got this sort of 
synoptic formation happening side by side. Hmm. And the, you know, the fact that, you know, you get divergence between, you know, literary text and, you know, visual rendition. And, you know, I mean, it's, it seems quite unique about Game of Thrones that the, the television has managed to get, or, you know, has managed to get ahead of the author writing. But we're probably going to see that in at least one other instance where um, I understand that Margaret Atwood is planning to write a sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. And of course, the television adaptation okay. of that has okay. actually uh, gone ahead and continued telling the story. And so there's, there's some interesting questions about what might happen there. Right. So as an author, do you decide at that point to shelter yourself from the show? Or do you decide to, I'm going to give my fans an alternative ending. Uh, mm. I've, seen, I've seen the show. I've seen that, how that kind of plays out but I want to have fun with the way that this ends literarily. I, I don't know. See, it's, it's, it's an interesting question about being able to hold two different official narratives in your hands side by side and not necessarily privilege one for the other. Yeah. And that's something that comic book fandom has been okay with for a very long time. Sure. And critical uh, critical Bible fandom, um, scholarly informed Bible fandom, whatever we want to call it, has been okay with, you know, Genesis having not one, but two prequels, right? Or uh, you know, <laughs> two creation stories, uh, right. multiple versions of things. And both, you know, weaving things together in our heads or in our retellings, you know, um, goes back even to the early church when it comes to the gospels, you know, people trying to say, well, let's just weave them all together. And others who are like, no, we can hold these in tension and have them all be canon, even though they're not entirely the same. Sure. Yeah. I mean, even Matthew will include the feeding of the 5,000 and then a feeding of the 7,000. And the question is, it, is this an editorial decision to say, okay, we've got these two traditions side by side, let's include them both? Or was there original story that didn't quite convey the, the, the message that Matthew wanted to get across? Uh, so, I mean, let, I mean the, the, what we're talking about with, with these modern stories, so much is about pr production and audience and uh you know what will make the most money um so that's it's a, it's a little bit of a different process um but but there is you know we do have precedent for holding parallel canons in tension and holding them simultaneously and you know normally we do privilege one for the other but but not so much that we wouldn't necessarily uh, say, no, we want four of these things side by side. So I guess the question is, you know, could we, you know, obviously the, we'd have to posit, you know, some ancient aliens and some other things from the sci-fi realm, you know, put some, <laughs> put some television technology back into the first century, which then was lost and forgotten about. But, you know, I mean, Mark is working on a script and gets behind those deadlines. And then Matthew writes a screenplay, you know, for the uh, television remake. And then Luke does what is essentially the attempt to uh, finish Mark's, you know, actual novelization or something. 
And, you know, could we explore this scenario? And I mean, obviously it would be very tongue in cheek, but would there be a level on which it made sense of uh, the data that, you know, essentially what we're dealing with are remakes, but they're not successive necessarily. They may be happening in different places almost simultaneously. Well, all right, let's imagine for a moment that we've got, let's imagine for a moment that Mark was never finished, right? So let's say, let's say we've got uh, Mark and it's about 16 chapters, but the 16th chapter. Let's imagine that it ends abruptly. Yeah, let's imagine for, yeah, <laughs> let's imagine that it ends abruptly and, and a little bit curiously. Uh, and then a few other evangelists come along and they decide, well, of course we've, we need a better ending. And then eventually someone comes along and, and, and is looking at these things side by side. Might they decide to end Mark differently by adding something on based on some other form of canonical tradition? Yeah, I think that that's very possible. Very possible. And then John comes along and reboots the franchise entirely. So. <laughs> yeah, we have to retell it with Christopher Pike, right? We- <laughs> there you go. There you go. I actually, so Star Trek, if you want to get, if you want to go there, um, yeah, Christopher Pike is at the moment my favorite captain. Yeah, I mean, Discovery is Christopher Pike. I just love him. And part of it is, I mean, he has a, you know, his father apparently was a professor who taught both uh, science and religious studies. But. I saw that. I saw that. So, so we're talking about the the most recent mm-hmm. um, television adaptation. Yeah. Okay. So I. All right. So t- tell me this. All right. So in the movies, in the in most recent films, mm-hmm. the way that they were able to appease the fan base, the fan base, it seems to me, without at the same time with having a certain amount of creativity without necessarily um, being beholden to the outcomes of the, of the, of the television series was they create this parallel timeline. Mm-hmm. And so you can kind of, you can kind of follow this parallel trajectory and it can have a different outcome because you don't need it to land specifically on uh the enterprise and the relationships in the enterprise in a way that, that has to be predetermined. Um, So I thought that was a clever way to do it, but I don't quite understand which timeline we're working with, with discovery. Yeah. And we haven't, I don't think we've explicitly been told that. I mean, we certainly wouldn't have been told that sort of in universe on the show. But I don't know that the producers have told us either. Well, we do. We do know with Discovery that we have these parallel universes is happening mm-hmm. simultaneously, and which, which is which is an old you know Star Trek uh, motif, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but there's nothing that there's nothing that has been promised to us that this is necessarily our. <laughs> our version of the multiverse mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> in some versions of the multiverse Klingons for instance have a much different skull st- structure than other Klingons so it, it's very well it could very well be that 
Uh, you know, this is this is happening on some in some universe, uh, and we have these characters that are somewhat reminiscent of characters we we've, we've met before, uh, but they don't need to be the same people entirely. I can have a beard in our universe and in this one, and you know, it's like, yeah. Are you okay with Spock's beard? Yeah, the band as well as the um, the, uh, the facial hair on the TV show. <laughs> Okay, I didn't know that there was a band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, no, I, I find this very interesting, and it, you know, you you bring up Pike's father who taught religion. I always felt like if there was one thing that Star Trek didn't quite get, what it was the the longevity and durability of religious, the place that, that religion holds in society. There's a lot of, there's a lot in Star Trek that talks about what it means to be human. And, um, and it very rarely, it very rarely talks about religion in a way that makes me think, uh, oh, okay, you're getting, you're definitely getting this part of it. Uh, it seems it seems like in the Star Trek universe, religion is altogether. I would I shouldn't say absent, but it's it it really is sort of a, a bygone reality. Well, it's interesting you say that uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, one is that I'm actually writing something about Star Trek and religion as well as uh, Star Wars and religion, uh, <clears throat> both in theology, um, in fact. But what I'm writing about Star Trek is about uh, gods in the Star Trek universe. And, oh gosh, there's a lot of them. Uh, Whether they are viewed as such is a different sort of question, but beings that have powers that are at least godlike. Yeah, in the same way that a a Roman or a a Greek god would basically be humanoid with superpowers, right? Yeah, and of course, I mean, the crew of the Enterprise meets Apollo in the original series, right? I mean, that's, you know, that's about as direct a connection, you know, but he's really an alien, right? But when Captain Kirk says, Apollo's no God, but he may have been mistaken for one once, he's doing theology, right? I mean, sure. what, what makes this figure, I mean, if the ancient Greeks worshipped this figure and had all the attributes of Apollo, then, I mean, Star Trek is saying Apollo literally exists. Right, which none of my cl- friends in classics uh, subscribe to, and so is is this negating religion or is this actually affirming it in a very very unusual sci-fi sort of way? You know, and I think that's mm-hmm. that's an interesting question. But right from right from the get-go, Star Trek has characters that are talking about gods and attributes of gods, um, and I'm probably going to start that chapter with a, a sort of trivia question about you know who's the first person that talks about you know theology talks about attributes of divinity on star trek um, yeah so. why does god need a spacecraft yeah yeah sure uh you know and these are but, the, but these are very scooby-doo like episodes sure right you know you pull off the mask and it's a uh, you know which is interesting because you know you watch something like uh doctor who which is another you know, franchise I'm a big fan of and write about. And there, it's like you, you pull off 
instead of pulling off the monster mask and there's a person behind it, you pull off the person mask and there's a monster behind it, you know? And so it's the, the sort of reversal <laughs> of that. Uh, okay. Scooby-Doo yeah. in reverse kind of thing. And I shouldn't say Star Trek never touches on religion. It just seems like, uh, <clears throat> like we'll meet Klingons who are very religious. Um, the, the Vulcan devotion to logic uh, seems to be, to have, have a religious component. Um, mm-hmm. But but for whatever reasons, the the humans that we meet uh, tend tend to view religion as something that is a, sort of a bygone reality. Uh, but you're right, you know, not that the- theology isn't can't be. You can't kind of get in the side door. In other words, mm-hmm. we we can get some interesting theological conversations going just based on the realities that we're meeting in outer space. Uh, certainly, I think Star Trek is does that well. Now, what, one thing that Game of Thrones does uh, very well is that it imagines a world where magic exists. And if magic exists, you're going to have these social groups that create mythologies around the magic and not only do that, but they create temples and they, they create sacrificial systems. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, in, in Martin's world, there are as many religions as there are different kinds of cultures. So um, it, that's something that, that Tolkien really didn't do. Tolkien had a sort of a primary mythology but there were no shrines to Gandalf in the, in the Shire. Uh, you know, there were no temples. You know, the hobbits didn't stop and see, you know, look at any temples along the landscape uh, as they're traversing Middle Earth. Mm. Uh, so I think in, in many ways, what, what Martin is doing that, that Tolkien never really did was Martin created a mythology, but then imagines various religions popping up around the mythology and you know warfare and debates and corrupt people that are you know in at very levels of investment uh, within the religion yeah and i think you know there's actually probably an interesting comparison to be made there between fantasy and sci-fi you know that cuts across both genres and makes for some interesting points of connection and uh, contrast because on the one hand you have uh, Martin, I don't know his, his uh, religious background. Um, he grew up Roman Catholic. Uh, but you know, Tolkien, you know, had a, a personal, you know, uh, religious outlook that uh, some have claimed to detect in, you know, what he wrote, but certainly what he talked about, you know, sort of, Sure. Outside of that. Uh, but, and so I think on the one hand, you know, and then you can look at Star Trek, which, you know, doesn't have a lot of religion in the original series. Of course, you get to Deep Space Nine and it's okay to have alien religion. Uh, right. <laughs> and that's a bit like, you know, fantasy religion. You know, it's like sure. we can imagine elf religion and dwarf religion, but we don't want to get into human religion because then, you know, that's kind of our own tradition, even if it's in a fantasy realm or in a distant future, and that might get into controversy, right? You know, what what leads people to either leave it out or incorporate it, you know, I think are interesting questions asked about authors. And then, you know, what's the, you know, what's the message or what's the 
the theological perspective that's at work there because avoiding it or weaving it in through and through both can be expressions of either you know devotion to a particular religious tradition or antagonism to religion in general or any number of other standpoints yeah that's right and i think with with lord of the rings one of the things that that comes up often is either either there's a resurrection of a character uh, and and some sort of transformation of that character by way of resurrection, or or Tolkien likes to play with literary re- resurrection, where where it seems as if a character uh, couldn't possibly have survived, and then a few chapters later, miraculously, that character has survived. And, uh, you know, this is the whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger kind of mentality that comes with that, uh, with that point of view. And, and one thing that Martin is doing in his work is to kind of subvert that. So to say, look, if, if Gandalf isn't, um, if Gandalf experiences something like a death and resurrection, he's not going to come back stronger. He's, there, he's, there's going to be a toll taken and he will come back something less than he was. Mm-hmm. And you'll see that Martin has been very, very out, outspoken about this. So it, there, there's, a, there's a sense in which Martin is trying to subvert some of, some of Tolkien's commitment to Catholicism. Um, so yeah, it's it's interesting. It, it very well could be because Tolkien was devoted as a Catholic. He doesn't want to play with religion in the same way that that Martin might want to play with it. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we could we could clearly talk about this for a very long time, um, and I'm not sure. I can't wait to see what yeah. you put together with regard to, to Star Wars. Let me ask you one question. Yeah. I know that we're wrapping up here, but um, do you think that there's a wink with the, um, okay, the, the Last Jedi, there's a wink there about getting sort of being able to burn and move on from the original canon? Yeah, so I I think there's there's something there. I'm not sure that we'll ever get a a direct response that you know the symbolism is intentional with respect to the the star the Star Wars canon itself. But I just see so much symbolism in you know what happens to those Jedi sacred texts. In that, on the one hand, it's like the the Jedi are letting go of them, torching them. You know, on the other hand they are being entrusted to, you know, because essentially they're either stolen or Yoda, you know, force shifts them. We know we're not told how they end up on the Millennium Falcon, but we actually see them in a <laughs> yes, drawer. They right? have survived. Right? They, they have, have survived. survived. So they've moved there, but they're in the classic ship, the classic Star Wars uh, ship, right? The Millennium Falcon, uh-huh. but which is now kind of under new management with a new pilot. Right. right. Sure. And so, I mean, intentional, and very deliberate or not, there is symbolism there, right? I mean, that is, yeah, and it's powerful symbolism, right? The, the franchise is 
being piloted by someone else. You know, the ship is <laughs> is being piloted by someone else who might take it in a different direction, right? And even the heroes, you know, just you know because of you know gender and race and things like that, there there was a, a constituency of fans that you know reacted very negatively, and it it brought out some of the the darker the dark side of yes, the dark side. Yeah, and so. Yeah, I think that the symbolism there is 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 powerful, and I'd be surprised if there wasn't at least an element in which they said, "Yeah, you know what? This is just you know, let's do this because it kind of symbolizes what's happening to the Star Wars universe." It's because they did, on the one hand, say, "No, all that stuff, that expanded universe, not canon," and yet names and themes and ideas come up in it. Right in the in the things that are canon, right, are mentioned. There are references. It's recycled, right? Which of course, the the boundaries of a canon, whether it's in science fiction or in the Bible, are permeable, right? Things that are not canonical, their impact can be seen in the canon, right? And vice sure. versa. Sure, Enoch, right? for instance. Yeah, right. Right. So my favorite example is where. Uh, there was debate, you know, some fans said, yeah, Luke projecting himself, you know, that's not a force power. How do they just introduce that now? And then Rian Johnson tweeted uh, a page from a book called The Jedi Path that was written at a time when, you know, I mean, it, it reflected the influence of the prequels, but also had the expanded universe. And so it's no longer canonical if it ever was, right? It's <clears throat> impacted by the elimination of the expanded universe but he tweets a page from that book in order to say look you know this is an old idea this is not something new sure and then he deletes the tweet (laughs) (laughs) what's the status of that right as far as canon is concerned i mean i think that in itself i mean i'm i'm writing about this in this chapter because it is just a fascinating example of the question of who gets to decide, right? And I mean, what happens if, you know, what happens if the Pope tweets something and then deletes the tweet? You know, what's the status of that? I mean, I just know it's not a, an official papal pronouncement, but still, right? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think it, it, we're talking about uh, the the Last Jedi. One one of the scenes that I really enjoyed was when Luke's, the older hermit Luke Skywalker refers to the lightsaber as a laser sword. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I really enjoyed that simply for the, the, the meta value of it because, of course, Luke Lucas famously called this thing a laser sword, which but if, if it was on anyone else's lips, you know, he said this in an interview, yeah. if it was on anyone else's lips, the fan community would 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 rise up in in unison and say, that's not what it's called. <laughs> you you got to use the official vocabulary. But of course, Lucas has a certain freedom to, to play with these categories that other people don't have. And, uh, I, you know, I, I enjoy, I enjoy the, the, the wink to the readers or the, or the viewers, uh, by putting that on the, really the hero of the first three movies. Uh, I don't know. Clear, clearly I thought it was a, an homage to Lucas there. Yeah, and there, I mean, Starkiller Base is another one where, you know, Starkiller was going to be, you know, the surname of a you uh-huh. know, character and then, uh-huh. you know, gets worked in as the base and things like that. 
there, there's, there, there's so many aspects of it where, you know, I mean, the question of are drafts and scripts canonical or is it only what appears on the screen, you know? And then novelization, right? You know, it's the reverse question to Game of Thrones. It starts as a movie, right? It will start as a script, you know, yeah. then becomes a movie, then gets a novelization. If something is said about a character in the novel, what's the canonical status of that, right? And of course, you know, the same thing is happening with the Bible, both in that we can sometimes detect sources behind it. And then we have our own way of interpreting it, right? Of expanding the story, filling in gaps, which whether it's written down or not, there's, there's headcanon when it comes to the Bible. That's true. I've, I've, also, I've often wondered if, um, you know, there was a, a lost gospel that look, looked very much like Mark that was discovered, you know, in the basement of some church somewhere. Um, what would ha- what you know? What would happen with this particular gospel if we could date it in a way that made it seem like it had a- apostolic authority? My guess is that the church at large would not add anything like that to the canon. Mm-hmm. But what would happen? It seems to me is that that would start to inform our study of textual criticism. And there would be elements of that that would start to seep into the next Nestle Allen. Um, so it would it would somehow start to influence the way that we read our canon, even if by getting into a side door there. Mm. It's been wonderful talking with you about this, as always. Oh, it's uh, this is super fun, super fun. Um, yeah, no, I'm I'm really looking forward to the uh, to, to this chapter. What's what's the what's in what's the book title? Where, so, where can I get it? Yeah, so it's it's going to be part of um, a volume that's being put together. There's a uh, a newish uh, book series on uh, theology and popular culture that uh, uh, Lexington Fortress, Lexington and Fortress are uh, uh, working on. They have some things coming out. I'm not yeah, sure. I've if, heard about this. Yeah. And so uh, there, there are volumes on um, Star Wars and theology, Star Trek and theology in the pipeline. And nice. Um, yeah, I'm going to be uh, making some contributions there and then have some ideas for some other volumes that might uh, one day make it into there. Um, so one, yeah, one idea I've sometimes had for a, you know, a book series is um, theology of fictional realms. Yeah, well, if you ever do that, and you know what? You really should. I mean, if ever you decide to pick up a Game of Thrones uh, and you decide, I, I might just give this a try, let me know. Because I, I, you're the kind of person I would love to talk to about, about that world. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, fans like, you know, I mean, like a, an operating manual for the Starship Enterprise or the Millennium Falcon. Sure, sure. Wouldn't, you know, wouldn't it be good to have a theology of, you know, not, what's going on in this literature or in these films, but what God or gods, what theology would work within this universe, you know? Right. And that sort of thing. Um, I wonder whether either fans or theologians or scholars of religion or anyone else would actually find that interesting or whether it's, 
it's just the sort of thing that you and I would enjoy, but very few others. Well, if anyone uh, that's listening is interested in that relative to to Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones stuff, um, yeah, that's that's kind of what we tried to do with with the, this two volume set, Gods of Thrones. So it, it it is basically the religions in the world rather than the religions, the religions of, in uh, the world, but also yeah. uh, talking about um, you know do does this tell us. Do any of these parallel religions that we know about in our world, whether they're medieval or modern, mm. and uh, we have fun with it. I mean, we, we we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I think that the book is, you know, we we try to sometimes make fun of the world, make fun of ourselves. So we're we're it, it's it's a I I think it's a it's a light read. Well, let me end by thanking you and by encouraging listeners to go and look up Gods of Thrones and uh, get their copy. Uh, They can get it straight uh, via Kindle, right, with one click, or they can order the paperback and have it delivered in however long that takes. Yeah. But if if you're at all interested in Game of Thrones, then uh, Gods of Thrones is something that you're going to want to, you're going to want to read. And so, yeah. I, Thank you, James. I appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate you being here today. Thanks so much. And for everyone else who's been listening, uh, enjoy reading Gods of Thrones. Bye for now. <laughs>